Welcome to the agronovations.com podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Today we wrap up with the interview with visionary mycologist Paul Stamets. I continued the interview by asking Paul about the medicinal value of mushrooms and mushroom mycelium and some of his research in that area. Well, some of the research I'm actively involved in, in um, for the past several years, um, and I've actually have spent more than $300,000 of my own money uh, on this, uh, but I've been passionate about collecting strains out of the old-growth forest, and we have a laboratory complex here. And we have about 300 strains of fungi in culture and produce over 10,000 kilos of mycelium per week, um, and I've focused on the old-growth forest fungi. And... Through various contacts uh, with the Department of Defense, they heard about my culture library and some of my other ideas, and so I was invited to participate in the uh, U.S. Uh, DOD's uh, Bio, uh, BioShield Biodefense Program, which was set up after 9-11 specifically to combat the threat of bioterrorism. And so it's been uh, funded with, I think, 4 to $6 billion to date to look for uh, novel compounds and, uh, and prevention and remedies uh, for uh, bioterrorist attacks, uh, with smallpox being the number one uh, agent of concern. I've submitted over 300 samples, uh, not of 300 species, but 300 samples uh, to the BioShield program over the past uh, four, four or five years. I'm bound by confidentiality, but... Some of this uh, has now been vetted by the U.S. Defense Department, and listeners can go to npr.org and listen to an NPR national broadcast with myself, uh, the founder of the Bioterrorism Institute, uh, John Norris, as well as a representative from the BioShield Biodefense Program. We started getting our research results back several years ago, and um, the threat of terrorism is real. Nuclear radioactive material uh, can be tracked to a degree because of its radioactive signature. Viruses cannot, um, and so the threat of a viral epidemic is is a clear and present danger, and many scientists believe that the, there's a viral storm on the horizon, and it may well be because of our overpopulation, the stressing of the immune system of the habitats in which we live, the thinning of soils, and the loss of biodiversity. All those things play into the same game. So the research results came back, and uh, a mushroom that we found uh, that I focused on for many years, called agaricon, uh, first described by Dioscorides in 65 AD as a treatment against consumption, now known as tuberculosis. Indeed, it is active against tuberculosis. Agaricon's Latin name is Fomitopsis officinalis. It's exclusive of the old-growth forests of the Northwest, Washington, Oregon, Northern California, British Columbia. It is now thought to be extinct over most regions of Europe, where it was first described over 2,000 years ago. When I sent in samples of this to the BioShield Biodefense Program. We have got extremely strong hits against pox viruses, orthopoxes, which includes uh, variola, smallpox. And uh, this came as quite as a surprise. And uh, we sent in many replicates. I think we have 31 uh, reproducible results uh, to date. And uh, we have been selected as having the uh, two of the top six hits against smallpox uh, like viruses, um, uh, were were chosen by the BioShield program. Two of those six uh, were my samples of Fomitopsis officinalis. Now, it's not the woodcock that you boil in water, which is the traditional Chinese and European method for making teas. The woodcocks we boiled in water were not active. So 
people shouldn't go out and collect this really rare mushroom. It's extremely rare. We need to preserve its biodiversity. Um, but it's the mycelium that I grew in a specialized way in the laboratory. Um, the uh, We have now 13 strains of this species in culture. Uh, the BioShield program has 10. Um, we sort of hit the big home run. The BioShield program was very excited because they were hoping that they would find something unexpected and novel to science. Um, the readers and listeners may not realize that Americans have not been vaccinated against smallpox since 1980, um, and most Americans since 1968. And the, as a result, everyone born after those dates uh, have no immunological defense against uh, pox viruses. In 1942, a lady in Peoria, Illinois, sent in a moldy cantaloupe to a U.S. government laboratory in response to the U.S. government's plea to Americans to send in their moldy fruit. The reason being is they're looking for new strains of penicillium, because even though Alexander Fleming uh, got the Nobel Prize in 1927, 1928 uh, for penicillium uh, chrysogenum's inhibition of staph bacteria, Staphylococcus aureus, um, the strains that had been discovered uh, up to 1942 uh, could not be industrialized to produce commercial amounts of penicillin. So her moldy cantaloupe yielded a strain of penicillium chrysogenum that produced 200 times uh, more penicillin than any strain heretofore seen. It revolutionized and allowed the industrialization of penicillin. The Germans and the Japanese did not have penicillin. The Americans and Brits did. Obviously, it saved uh, tens of millions of lives and helped tip the balance in favor of the Allied powers against the Axis powers in World War II. Well, Agaricon, Fomitops officinalis, the mushroom that grows in the old-growth forest, does not enjoy the widespread habit, uh, habitat distribution that a cantaloupe does. And so as there's a, a, we have these shrinking habitats, and logically, if I have 10 strains of this mushroom or 100 strains of this mushroom, I'm going to find one strain that's going to be more active than the other ones, and we're already seeing that. And so we're trying to find a strain that will be most active against the pox viruses uh, because it will lessen the cost of, of industrialization, and this is obviously in the public's interest. Um, there's no market for uh, antidotes or treatments against uh, pox today. Um, that's why I've entered into a contract with the U.S. government and the National Center for Natural Products Research um, doing biogated uh, bio fractionation to try to determine the active constituents. Uh, to date, we've been unsuccessful. The natural extract is more active than any fractionated constituent uh, that we've been able to, to pull out of these broths. Um, it is totally non-toxic to humans. It's had a 2,000-year history of use. And so we have found something that the BioShield program has been quite surprised by because they fully expected that the pharmaceutical companies, um, Merck, you know, and, and the large pharmaceutical entities would have made this discovery. Um, but I, I received two phone calls from the BioShield program from the scientists there saying that people there are cheering for me because this is exactly what they had hoped. And I make the argument now that we should save the old-growth forest as a matter of national defense. And that is a bridge argument that uh, is an amending. You know, smallpox does not care if you're Republican or Democrat. You know, smallpox doesn't care about borders. And um, there is a, unfortunately, a Machiavellian decision uh, tree um, that has been um, that has been created by the U.S. government. In that, if there is an epidemic 
of smallpox. Um, the strains have uh, may have mutated and probably have by now, so we don't know if the previous vaccinations uh, will be as effective. But if there is a presidential mandate because of a smallpox a- epidemic that all Americans become vaccinated, we have some huge problems. Uh, not only is our society uh, very plastic right now, uh, we move around a lot, but we have a very large and increasingly large HIV-compromised population. With HIV and immunocompromised individuals, for them to take the smallpox vaccine, there is a much higher incidence of adverse reactions. So if you were HIV-compromised and you were told that you had to take this vaccine, uh, but there was a significant uh, threat uh, to your health that you can have an adverse reaction and you'd actually die from the very vaccine that you're taking, how many of the HIV-compromised population would take it? And unfortunately, they become, uh, quote-unquote, typhoid marys. They become uh, potential uh, uh, sources of a highly virulent, contagious forms of smallpox. So the, this is, a, is a, a terrible scenario, but it is a scenario that the U.S. government and other governments around the world believe is real, uh, is significant, and it's far better to think about this now to come up with preventive remedies uh, and then, then trying to treat it after the fact. But treating it after the fact is going to literally unravel uh, the fabric of our society. And um, some of the big concerns that people even have about bird flu now, it's, um, if it's not smallpox, it could be bird flu, it could be SARS. Does anybody really think SARS has gone away? No. I mean, SARS uh, was carried by civet cats. Civet cats eat birds. Birds carry bird flu and West Nile virus by mosquitoes. All those uh, viruses are being mixed up. And uh, the potential of a viral epidemic uh, appearing on the near horizon in our lifetime is a very real and poignant threat. All the more reason that we should look for alternative uh, remedies and explore the natural world uh, for compounds that can help help, uh, prevent these disease vectors. That's one of dozens of examples that I can give you, but it's very salient, and I would encourage any uh, listener to listen to the NPR.org interview, and there's a vetted uh, smallpox uh, uh, agaricon press release uh, vetted by the U.S. Defense Department, and if you punch in my name in Google, Stamets and Smallpox, you can see it uh, under a company called Yet2.com, and that is a, a U.S. government-approved um, press release concerning my research. So now one of your uh, proposed solutions, obviously, is conserving our forests in the Northwest. Um, And that kind of leads me to my next question, uh, which is about the tropics. Now, as as you've mentioned, you've spent many years isolating cultivars from the woods of the Pacific Northwest. um, And the biodiversity there pales in comparison to places like the Amazon. What do we know about edible species with tropical origins? Well... There's not, surprisingly, as many edible mushrooms in the tropics as there are in the temperate regions of the world. Um, the uh, saprophytic fungi are operating uh, at light speed, so to speak, uh, in the tropics because uh, there's not a winter to shut down the, or slow down the life cycles. Uh, but uh, the biodiversity, uh, for instance, or the mycodiversity in Hawaii, uh, pales in comparison to the mycodiversity in the Pacific Northwest. We have four to 6,000 species here in the Northwest, and Hawaii is in the hundreds. Um, so it's hard to, as they say, paint the canvas with one brush. You know, so some areas of the tropics 
uh, are a lot more mycologically active in terms of the life cycles, but have less uh, biodiversity. There's more edible mushrooms in temperate regions than there are in tropical regions. Uh, it's just the luck of the, the draw, so to speak. Um, there are a lot more edible species in um, – there's more, a longer tradition of eating edible uh, mushrooms uh, in the northern temperate regions than there are in the southern temperate regions. Um, so there are, you know, there are pockets of knowledge that have evolved in, um, in civilizations, and experts and families tell others about the mushrooms that they enjoy, and so the body intellect in those cultures spreads out. Other areas that don't have as much populations or for whatever reason um, they didn't discover that these mushrooms exist in their landscape have a lot fewer or a lot less knowledge. Um, but the fungi are on the march, and as global warming uh, um, defrosts uh, the temperate zone, then there's going to be an, an inevitable migration of temperate species in, into the uh, Arctic regions, and similarly a migration of tropical species into the uh, into the sub-temperate regions. The biodiversity or uh, of all organisms, I think, is part of a, and especially with fungi, these are essential. Uh, elements in our biological in our biological tool chest, and when we lose these species, we're losing like rivets in an airplane, that can lead to catastrophic failure. How many species will we lose uh, before the entire system uh, goes through a, a cataclysmic failure? And in doing so, a species at the top of the food chain is obviously going to be greatly impacted because the food chain is a sequence of microorganisms to micro, to macroorganisms. And that's being macroorganisms. You know, if we don't have the microbes to help us in our food chains, we'll have nothing to eat. Um, so this is all a very uh, complex subject. But the whole concept of, of Gaia and Gaia being uh, a one macroorganism composed of individuals, well, that concept mimics uh, you and I today. I am, I am Paul Stamets speaking with one voice, but I'm a consortium of microbes that are unified together to create this body. And although I'm speaking with one voice, I'm representing a constellation of microbes that are unified in symbiosis to speak to you and, uh, and to your listeners. And so I think symbiosis is the way of nature. Uh, nature loves partnerships. The partnerships reward, uh, are rewarded, and there are many, many examples. Here's one that I think is very cool. A group of scientists uh, discovered the, the atine ants in uh, North Africa cultivate a Lepiota parasol mushroom. This mushroom is very large. It's edible in choice. It gets to two to three feet in diameter. Well, the atine ants cultivate the mycelium in their nest, and the mycelium in their nest um, pre-selects a bacterium, and this bacterium produces an antibiotic that's active against Escovopsis. Escovopsis is a fungus that parasitizes uh, ant colonies, and so the ants have learned through natural selection and evolution and maybe just, just good luck and by happenstance uh, that uh, if they cultivate the mycelium of this mushroom, it produces the bacteria that produces the antibiotic that prevents another fungal infection that's dangerous to them. So the ants now have become little mushroom cultivators moving uh, fragments of mycelium around. Uh, and that, I think, is one example that is a model upon which uh, much of nature is based. Now, speaking of using mushrooms to protect uh, from something that's uh, poisonous or toxic, um, talk about the use of mycelium in bioremediation, please. 
Well, I have a new book, as you know. It's called Mycelium Running, How Mushrooms Can Help Save the World. And this book um, uh, is on the uh, subtitle could be Mycorestoration. Mycorestoration contains um, five components, uh, mycofiltration, the use of mycelium to filter out bacteria and, and microbes and silt uh, into downstream environments, using the mycelium as a biological filter. There's microremediation, the breaking down of uh, toxic waste, um, such as petroleum products, um, using, using mycelial enzymes and acids that are very, very good at breaking uh, down recalcitrant pollutants, especially uh, petroleum-based ones. Uh, there's myco in, uh, mycopesticides or mycoinsecticides, which uh, uses fungi to um, trick and kill um, termites and carpenter ants and other um, quote-unquote pest insects. I don't like that phrase, but that's what's used. Um, and there's uh, mycoforestry, uh, the combination of mycelium to help forest ecosystems, mycogardening, a combination of mycelium to help garden. And um, those are the five uh, pedestals of, of micro-restoration. And micro-remediation is uh, something that I've focused on a lot for many years. And we did some experiments to break down petroleum uh, diesel spills in Bellingham, Washington, with the Department of Transportation, and I worked with Battelle Laboratories for four or five years, and we um, introduced oyster mushroom mycelium um, into uh, a mound of petroleum-contaminated soil, had 2% of what's called PAHs, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, and the PAHs were reduced from 20,000 parts per million to less than 200 in eight weeks. Um, and this was an astonishing success. No, no other treatment using biological systems worked this fast. Uh, our mushroom, our pile, uh, started fruiting with oyster mushrooms prolifically, hundreds of mushrooms, and this is all, all featured in my books, and the mushrooms are perfectly edible and detoxified the substrate. So micro-remediation is, uh, has really surged in the past few years and has gone through a rebirth in the past two to three years, and uh, there are several groups now around the world actively using um, microremediation strategies uh, to break down toxic waste uh, in their ecosystem. So I would really encourage people to, to you know, I, I'm, I, I'm unabashed about this because this is the first book that I wrote. I have six books out. This is the first book that I wrote that I was so anxious to get it done. I was so concerned that I either have a heart attack, I have a, a car accident, I would die before the book came out because this book, the book is more important than the author that wrote it. Is the uh, the book is indeed something that can help humanity, and I think this book will carry on through many lifetimes because it shows people um, the way of using mycelium uh, to uh, help the ecosystem and ultimately help ourselves. Now, you've uh, also touched on the theme of producing biofuels with mushrooms. Could you talk about this? Yes. <laughs> Um, it's a very sensitive subject because the IP is extremely hot. Uh, but for 30 years, I've been digesting cellulose with mycelium. The mycelium digests the cellulose and produces fungal carbohydrates, sugars. Uh, carbohydrates are polysaccharides, uh, more than one sugar uh, joined together. And yeast and bacteria uh, can break down these sugars to generate uh, ethanol and other uh, types of alcohol. So... Uh, I was looking uh, somewhat perplexed at uh, the literature 
where they were concentrating on uh, on Aspergillus oryzae, uh, which is used to make uh, sake and uh, other types of wines, and and um, and the Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which all enjoy that, many of us do, you know, in beer, etc. And um, and there was a again a form of biological racism against mushrooms. And uh, given that the largest organism in the world is the mycelial mat of a mushroom, um, and I have many years of experience in running mycelium on various types of cellulosic substrates, straw, wood chips, paper, uh, etc., I uh, knew I had a, a big advantage in my in my knowledge. And so I uh, tried something that that was intuitive to me, but non-obvious to other people, and. Um, and so far, the results uh, show a significant enhancement uh, of ethanol fuel production over that of pre-existing technologies. So I filed a, a patent on that in September, and uh, we are actively involved in research even today. Uh, as a daily project here of enhancing ethanol production using the enzymes in the mycelial mats of selected fungal species. Um, and I'm not really prepared to talk about it much more. Um, uh, than this right now uh, for a lot of really good reasons, um, not not just because it's sensitive intellectual property, also because the data fields are not quite complete, uh, but that which we have seen so far uh, gives us a strong encouragement. I'm not hip on cutting down the forest, folks, to make biofuel. I think it's a really bad idea, um, and I don't like the idea of using corn, um, you know, to generate uh, biofuels because I think corn – the feedstock for animals is a uh, is a well laid down path, but looking at other waste streams that are not presently being utilized that can still help build soil, and I think that is the 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 um, the best of the of the available substrate streams that we have that we have not currently utilized, and so I like the idea of using uh, cereal straws and um, growing 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 these fungi on other waste. Uh, products that uh, are, will not threaten uh, pre-existing food uh, chains that have already been well established. Um, speaking of patents, uh, you have been recently granted a patent on a natural method for for the control of social insects in the order Hymenoptera. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, I'm. You know, the people. You know, the patents are to serve the public interest and to reward the inventor for 17 years. And um, uh, I am sort of mycocentric in my point of view, and that's been uh, to my advantage, obviously, because, again, speaking of mycophobia, the pesticide industry has invested, invested up to $100 million in biopesticides using entomopathogenic fungi. These are fungi that, that infect insects, and actually uh, some of them are used medicinally. One is called cordyceps, Cordyceps sinensis, uh, Dong Chong Chi Chow, is a well-known medicinal mushroom in, in Asia and been used for thousands of years in tea to improve stamina and athletic uh, performance. Uh, it, it has an anamorph, which means there's like two sides of the same coin. A fungus can have two expressions, uh, one in a mushroom state, one in a mold state. Well, the mold state is uh, of the of cordyceps. One of them is called metarhizium also pronounced metarhizium. And uh, metarhizium um, is a green mold similar to a penicillium molds. And r lots of patents have been issued, lots of great scientists, people far more skilled in the subject than me, um, have done great work over 20 years, and they enhance spore production in the virulence of spores 
So less bores would have to be used per acre, and they could treat, you know, uh, bull weevils and, you know, and, and other type of agricultural pests besides uh, uh, urban pests such as termites and carpenter ants. But then they created these these experiments where they would brush the insects with a, a brush that had spores on it, and the spores would infect the insect and kill them. Uh, that would usually happen within a week or so. Now, social insects are social insects are, are, have a queen, and the queen is is guarded and protected at all costs. And so there are guards at the entrance to the uh, colonies. And if uh, one of these workers that come back uh, from foraging has spores of metarhizium, they won't let the, the insect that worker into the nest. And so the guards actually will uh, capture one of these infected workers. Uh, they're constantly trying to groom themselves, but the spores become embedded. And if the spores are embedded, they can't get them off. And so the guards will pick up the workers and take them to a graveyard, literally a graveyard, and they decapitate them and they kill the worker. But then the guards remain in the graveyard because they've been exposed. And the graveyard is the source of where these strains are. So I can get these strains or anyone can get these strains out of a graveyard from a termite or carpenter uh, colony because they all have them. And they keep the graveyard separate uh, from uh, the mother colony. So there's a very strong aversion to the scent or smell of these spores. The insects have learned that these are pathogens. So the scientists, even though they demonstrated this in the laboratory by directly applying the spores, couldn't get the insects to come to bait stations when they were put outside around buildings because the insects aren't stupid. They could smell the plague when they got near it, and uh, they turn around and run away. And so the uh, use of these spores uh, for preventing termites from destroying your house it was never successfully commercialized. So I had a very funky house and uh, that was built in 1910 and then rebuilt in 1965. And a flat roof in Washington State makes no sense at all. I had 12 buckets catching water through the roof. You know, my wife one day during a storm, uh, the house shifted and the roof partially fell down four or five inches. And she said, oh, my gosh, the house is falling down. And I said, don't worry, dear. The Roof is no longer flat. That means the water will flow off the roof faster, and we don't have to empty the buckets as much. You know, it's, it's a really uh, unusual um, setting for me, but maybe great for a mycologist because there's so many molds and insects all around me. But I looked, went on the EPA.gov homepage and I discovered that metarhizium was being favored because it does not kill bees. Actually, they are doing experiments uh, now using bees as carrier pigeons for metarhizium, uh, so it can kill the varroa mites that are that are killing the bees. And so it's bee-friendly. So the EPA uh, likes this group and is encouraging research. I ordered some of these cultures, and I, you know, I'm not an expert in metarhizium, uh, and I got these cultures, and they're like penicillium molds. There are mold spores everywhere, and the last thing I want to have is free-flowing spores flying through my, throughout my laboratory. So I, I took some of these cultures, and I quickly plated them out. That means I put them on to petri dishes, and I uh, did this as quickly as I could, and I was saying, oh, this is going to be a big problem for me because I have spore-free clean room environments, and I didn't have a biohazard hood at that time. And uh, then I saw a little wedge of white mycelium that formed, you know, as a V-shaped sector uh, on the Petri dish. And it's just a white uh, growth as opposed to a green growth. And so I, I said, oh, that's interesting. I looked up in literature, and everybody in literature said the sectoring of metarhizium is bad. You know, fewer spores, fewer missiles, uh, less potential of death. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to chase this sector of white mycelium. So I did that over several weeks, and I transformed the culture uh, uh, from a green mold, penicillium-like culture into one that's white and fuzzy. 
that had no spores. And I delayed sporulation. And then I made a, uh, my daughter who was living with me, um, she was 16 at the time, and uh, I made a big scene that we're going to trick the carpenter ants. And so every time that I was vacuuming in the morning, this big pile of sawdust in one part of the house would gather, and I would vacuum it up, and now the carpenter ants were you know, at work again last night, and they'd eat part of my house, and they would be on the floor the next, next morning. And so um, I knew there was a point of entry, and I could see little piles of sawdust and, and carpenter ants once in a while going through this one point. So I went to my daughter, and I asked her for a little Barbie doll dish. So I put down mycelium that grew on rice without any spores of metarhizium onto the dish, and I put it down, and I made a big scene um, with my daughter and my wife saying, we're going to trick the carpenter ants. And then we put it down around 9 o'clock at night in the summertime. And uh, then my daughter, uh, around midnight, had to use the bathroom. And she uh, thought, and when she got up, well, I might as well look in, the, look in that dish. And she walked by it, and it was swarming with carpenter ants. And uh, she woke us up said, Dad, Dusty, come, into the, uh, come and see this. You've got to see this. And we woke up, and we saw the carpenter ants pick up the mycelium on rice and march it back into the, into the house. Well, one week later, there's no sawdust piles. Now, had she seen that, you know, mice could have eaten the rice. You know, I wouldn't have, would have known. But I was able to get rid of carpenters at my house, and they didn't come back. You know, for five years, we had the house longer until it was, it was torn down. But the carpenter ants never reinvaded, probably because after the end, it was queen-friendly. It was given to the – we know from experiments now that it's given to the queen. The queen distributes it. Uh, the workers become like little mushroom growers again, and the entire colony is infected. And before they know it, uh, they've spread this infection throughout the entire colony. So I talked to a friend of mine who's a patent attorney, and, and I told him I looked in the literature, and I, everyone said these sectors were bad, and, and I delayed sporulation. I think I found something that's very clever. And uh, so he agreed and did some more work, and so we began filing patents. And my second patent was issued October 17, 2006. That's viewable on the USPTO .gov homepage. That's the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office homepage. The second patent is what's been called the Alexander Graham Bell patent. It could literally replace most chemical pesticides in the world uh, with a very inexpensive solution that's environmentally sound. And I realize these, these, this discovery has huge responsibility. And so I created the guiding principles that are attached to my patents. And the number one guiding principle is uh, we wage no war against insects. We want to preserve insect biodiversity. I just don't want termites eating my house. And, uh, and so I have a series of very strong uh, ethical and ecological statutes uh, that, uh, that are the guiding principles of my patents. So this patent uh, has been awarded against all social insects, more than 200,000 species, using uh, metarhizium anisopoli and Bavaria bassiana. That's a white mold. That's the anamorph uh, of cordyceps. So cordyceps, the mushroom, can have more than uh, uh, one other form. And so... This patent is, is uh, considered to be a huge breakthrough, and ultimately my goal uh, would be to go to Africa, and I think I can steer a locust uh, uh, plague into a 55-gallon drum, or more than one, uh, because they produce these very strong uh, uh, aromatic uh, yet unknown compounds that uh, steer insect invasions. And so we've treated this against fire ants, carpenter ants, subterranean termites, formosan termites. I've now tried it against non-social insects um, with great results, so I'm now pursuing patents that will give me non-social insects. If that happens, then I'll have the entire kingdom. This is, this is so significant. It's probably the, one of the most significant scientific discoveries, I think, you know, in, in, in the field of mycology ever made. I'm somewhat surprised that I made it because a lot of other smarter people than me that have been working on this, but they, you know, again, could not have seen the forest for the trees, perhaps. And, uh, and I 
you know, being independent, uh, just thought a little bit differently. We've engaged the pesticide industry for the past four years. They did experiments that actually were better than ours in terms of the results. And unfortunately, I've come to the sad realization, which I had at the beginning, but I, hung out, I, I sort of forgave these pesticide companies temporarily to see if they really truly wanted to become green. Um, but logically, it, these companies that uh, have billion-dollar profit wheels based on the petrochemical industry that's spewing out huge profits that have been paid for, uh, for to replace it with something that could get rid of termites and carpenter ants in your house for 25 cents permanently uh, is a huge threat to their profit wheels. And one, uh, two groups told me, well, this is terrible. We'd have to lay off our employees. And it's nice to, to, to protect the welfare of companies' employees. I totally agree. But I think that there's a much larger social benefit in getting rid of toxic chemicals and laying off those employees uh, uh, than, than preserving the status quo and not having uh, a non-toxic remedy for controlling insects in the world. So, is 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 there any kind of commercial? <laughs> is there any kind of commercial product available that that no, does this? We actually this are now pursuing EPA registration ourselves, and um, I decided that you know we sell thousands of mushroom kits through the mail. This is easier uh, to grow than a mushroom kit because you don't have to grow the mushrooms; you have to grow the mycelium, and the insects discover it. And so, my path now and. Um, and if there's pesticide representatives listening to this interview, uh, yes, I'm a huge threat to your industry. I plan to sell this mail order, um, and we'll be able to market this hopefully in the next few years. And the same companies that would not dance with us or actually dance with us, I think, only to the degree that they want to see what our level of technology was. Um, fortunately, in the past six months, our technology has radically improved, uh, and now we have different uh, um, methods uh, of uh, del different delivery systems. And so we've developed uh, bait traps and systems that people can put around their property. And, but all, all pesticides have to be EPA approved, and um, even biopesticides. And uh, so we are actively engaged in dialogue with the EPA currently uh, to get uh, these, these registered. Um, so I can't provide it to anybody uh, unfortunately, um, we um, have experimental uses. Uh, again, I've proved this in the field. In the Journal of Sociobiology, there's a peer-reviewed article by Dr. Roger uh, Gold, um, and it discusses uh, the use of my mycopesticides in comparison to um, a, a FMC product uh, uh, called Summons, and uh, we beat that product hands down. Uh, according to this peer-reviewed article in the Journal of Sociobiology. So this is a, this is incredibly exciting, and it dovetails into, into medicinals. Now, insects carry viruses, and so I see the, uh, the conjoining of these uh, mycotechnologies that I've been working on, antivirals, uh, microremediation, microfiltration, um, and leading to more sustainable habitats, increasing biodiversity, and I can get these strains out of nature. I don't have to – there's no GMO work here. Uh, nature elects the strains, and they're eco-specific to the regions. So I can go anywhere in the world and uh, go to a termite colony and find these fungi. They're everywhere. Uh, and they'll be ecologically specific to that bioregion bio and also be specific to the insects uh, that it has already adapted to killing. Uh, so I think these convergent technologies um, it can create a paradigm shift that can re re revolutionize uh, the uh, way that we deal uh, with pathogens 
whether they're a virus, bacterial, uh, uh, insect, uh, or I would consider chemicals pathogens as well. Um, I think this is a way of, of having one systematized approach uh, for dealing uh, uh, with many of the catastrophes that now we are wreaking upon the ecosystem. Well, I certainly know uh, that hundreds of thousands of small farmers, if not millions of small farmers in the tropics who are affected by leafcutter ants would, would be interested in something like this. Um, we're about out of time, but could you uh, tell people where they could get a copy of your newest book? Right. Um, we are at uh, fungi.com, F-U-N-G-I.com. Um, and on, on that website, you'll see uh, a listing of my publications and books, lots of other things, and Mycelium Running, How Mushrooms Can Help Save the World, is, is listed. It's published by 10 Speed Press in uh, Berkeley, California. And um, I'm, this is uh, the work that I'm most proud of, and I see it as a manual for the mycological rescue of the planet. And uh, when I pass on, I hope the book... Uh, will be utilized for future generations because I think it's a gateway book that leads to greater knowledge. Well, Paul, thank you so much for being with us. This has been a very enlightening interview, and I'm sure that everyone that listens to it uh, will feel the same. Thank you, Frank. That does it for today's show. Thank you so much, Paul Stamets, for sharing your wisdom with us. We've got some great shows on the horizon for you. An interview with Bill Mollison, permacultural pioneer, talks about his life and uh, his discoveries and the application of those discoveries. We've also got an interview with Ron Golden on paralysis technology, so please stay tuned. Those interviews will be coming very soon. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Frank Aragona. This is the AgroInnovations.com podcast. Saludos. Saludos.